Let's pray together and seek the Lord's help for me and all of us. Father God, as we look at this part of your word that I think for me and all of us is hard to live out, Lord, we pray that you might teach us, that you might encourage us, that you might help by your spirit me to speak your word with faithfulness and clarity in a way that builds up your people and pleases Jesus, your son, our saviour. Lord, please by your spirit change all of our lives. Make us more like him. Glorify yourself as we hear your word today. Plant it deep in us, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Imagine that you are a Christian living in Guinea in West Africa. You live in a small village. The villagers who follow the traditional African religion, they've boycotted the Christian minority that you're a part of. So they never speak to you. They won't do business with you. Certain things you can't buy. All because you didn't participate in their ritual sacrifices. You're even forced to drink dirty water from dirty streams because you were refused access to the clean water by the local Muslims. This happened in 2018. Then Barnabas Fund came and built a new bore providing fresh, clean water for the Christians. And do you know what those followers of Jesus did? They provided all their neighbours with water from the boar, even the Muslims who'd refused to give them access to clean water. This demonstration of love led one village elder to express regret for how badly they treated the Christians in his community. And he said, we never knew that the Christianity we were fighting could be such a blessing to our village. Love shown to enemies, those who hurt us. It's really hard to do, but it's really powerful. My question is why? Why would Christians love those who hurt them and do good when we suffer for it? We're going to be thinking about these things this morning. Remember, Peter is writing to Christians who are strangers and exiles in this world, this life. And since chapter 2, verse 12, they and we have been encouraged to live good lives before all of those around us, the unbelievers around us. Peter and his recipients were likely in a worsening situation with increasing hostility to Christians. And I think that's like our situation. The flow of our culture is making it harder to follow Jesus and to be open about what he says, what God's word says. And I think our first response when we face suffering is often to love ourselves first, protect ourselves. But Peter is calling us to a different way, to Christ's way. He's spoken to slaves, to wives and husbands, and now he concludes the section by speaking to everyone. He says, finally, all of you. And our first of three points this morning is loving your enemies. Verse 8 is spoken to Christians and speaks to how we should relate to one another in the church. Begins with harmony. It ends with humility. And there's lots in the middle. Just briefly, though, all the qualities that they're needed in times of disagreement and trial, times of stress and suffering... 
We are to be like-minded. We're to work for harmony with each other. We're to show sympathy and compassion to those who suffer, to others who suffer. Love is literally love as brothers. In English, we have a saying, blood is thicker than water. I don't know if you've heard that. Blood is thicker than water. And it suggests that there is a special tie which holds a family together. It suggests that that tie is really close. Family, blood relationships are close. Believers, though, have a similar link. May I suggest with a blood that is more precious. You see, by grace, we are brothers and sisters in the family of God, bought by the precious blood of Jesus. And that tie that binds us in Christian love, it is strong and it should be evident, it should be shown. And so I ask, are you loving your church family? Then, similar to what was said back in chapter 2, verse 21, to slaves, Peter again says, don't pay back evil for evil or insult for insult. Repay people with a blessing. As we saw two weeks ago, if you hear Peter's not ruling out fleeing for your life or your own safety, he's not ruling out relying on the law. But he is saying the Christian must say no to revenge. And revenge or getting even, it's deep-rooted in our hearts, isn't it? I mean, a kid at school hits you, hurts you, and you just want to hit them back or hurt them back in some other way, even secretly. Yet the way of Christ is not to take revenge, even on persecutors. And to respond to them with a blessing, it means that you speak and act kindly to them, that you you wish God's best for them, you pray for them, seeking their highest good, even their salvation. I mean, that's what the Christians in Guinea did, didn't they, when they invited the Muslims who persecuted and hurt them to share in that clean water, loving their enemies. It's never easy. It's really hard. And so why do this? Why bless those who hurt or persecute you? Verse 9 says, so that you may inherit a blessing. Because as we've seen since chapter 1 and verse 4, the blessing we inherit, inherit is kept in heaven for you. It's our future eternal salvation. Peter then goes on to quote Psalm 34 at length. Originally, right at the start there, Loving life, seeing good days, in Psalm 34, it originally meant enjoying long life on the earth. But for Peter, the way he applies it now, for Peter and for us now, it points to our eternal life in heaven that awaits us. And the point is, from from Psalm 34, if you want life, then don't speak evil or deceit. Verse 10, don't do evil, but do good. Verse 11, why? Because God's eyes, his ears, his face will be open to you and not against you. It's metaphorical language that means that those who know God by faith and follow Jesus, those who obey his commands, they will please the Lord. God will hear their prayers. I mean, honestly, how can anyone who constantly keeps rejecting what God says, continues doing evil, how can they expect God's blessing? 
Last week, do you remember in verse 7, husbands who fail to honour their wives were told that God does not hear their prayers. And now in verse 12, it's saying, well, actually, that's true for everyone who does evil. Repentance needs to come first. It's not saying that we earn this blessing or that we earn eternal life by living a righteous life. But rather, it means that those of us who have relationship with God, if we have relationship with God through Jesus, then we really want to. We really will live differently. Christians will live a new way, God's way, and know his favour. And yet it's important for us to understand that Psalm 34 was true of Jesus before it was true of us. He was the one who perfectly always kept his tongue from evil and never spoke deceitful words. Jesus always turned away from evil and did good. He was the peacemaker. He trusted God. His God and Father who heard his prayers, except when he hung on the cross and bore the penalty for our sin. It was then that the Father's face was turned away from him in order to save us. But what happened after he died on the cross? Jesus was raised up to life to experience never stopping good days, shall we say, in glory in the presence of his Father in heaven. And so Psalm 34 points to Jesus before it does points to us. It can be true of us only because it was first true for Jesus. He's the one who perfectly, he's the, who perfectly loved his enemies. He's the supreme example of loving your enemies. And knowing that blessing is coming to we who follow him, who trust him, it will fill us with strength to love our enemies means that when we're finding it hard to love our enemies, we need to think of and set our hearts on Jesus. So I ask, in what situation or what relationship do you need to turn away from evil and love, do good? And how will you show love to that person where it's hard to at the moment? And Peter speaks about suffering for doing good. The next point, point two. Verse 13, who will harm you then if you're devoted to doing what's good? His point is, for most people, most of the time, if you're zealous, passionate for doing good, people won't want to harm you. But Peter knows that that's not always the case. Verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. It's possible. May we even say it's probable that Christians, we Christians, will suffer for doing good. And righteousness is a synonym for good here. They're both talking about the same thing. But why do what's right when you're going to suffer for it? Again, because you are blessed, he says. But notice the present tense here. This is experience now. As we saw a couple of weeks ago in Matthew chapter 5, these words of Jesus, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when people insult you and 
persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. And so with Peter, with Jesus, the promise of heaven awaits and we are blessed to be given that promise. We are blessed to be able to hold on to and cling to that promise when we suffer. But it's not just a promise of future blessing. What's happening here is Peter and Jesus are pronouncing a blessing that means that God is for you and not against you now. Now he's for you, not against you. Brothers and sisters, this means that suffering and is not the opposite of blessing. We can actually be blessed while we suffer and even in the pain. In the suffering, God is with you and he will not leave you. God's favour rests upon you. As we just prayed it would in that blessing on Clara earlier. His blessing can rest upon you and it does, Christian, even when you don't feel it. In verse 14, Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 8. In Isaiah 8, God is, has said to Isaiah the prophet that even though Assyria is coming to smash Israel, Isaiah was not to fear what others fear, but regard the Lord as holy. Peter then applies what was said of the Lord Almighty, the Lord of armies, to the Lord Jesus in 1 Peter 3, telling us that Jesus is divine, he is God. But also we're to regard Jesus, the Lord Jesus as holy, as we'll come to in a moment. But because we're trusting in the Lord, his point is we don't need to fear other people. True for Isaiah, true for us. We don't need to be afraid of suffering or death. Believe me, I know that's hard. But we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be intimidated or troubled or anxious about anything. I wonder when Peter wrote verse 14 if he was remembering his own giving in to fear. Remember how in Mark chapter 14 Jesus has been arrested, taken on trial by the Jewish leaders, and just outside Peter in the courtyard, his appearance and his accent gives away that he's a follower of Jesus. You remember how three times Peter denied that he knew Jesus? Maybe he had his own spectacular failure on his mind as he wrote these words. Do not fear. But this tells us, doesn't it, that this Peter is not the same person that he was before the crucifixion. He has swapped a fear of man for a fear of God. And if you are troubled by your own fear, anxieties, then remember that if you trust in Jesus, you're actually not the same person either. Even if you are weighed down by past sins, held back by fear, remember that Jesus died for you to forgive you to forgive your sins and set you free. Remember and believe that he's taken your guilt away and by faith in Jesus you have the Holy Spirit. And just as the post-Pentecost Peter was different, 
The Christian who's been converted and who has the Holy Spirit now is different from the person we were before. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, you can choose to not give in to fear and not let fear determine our choices as we trust God and do good. See, the point is whatever God sends to us, whatever we experience in life, God's strength will meet us in our need. He wants us to trust him. Another reason that we can trust God and do good is because we trust that God rules over our life. Look at verse 17. Peter's saying there, if you're suffering, you can trust that it's happening because it is God's will. He's sovereign over your suffering. Just like we'll see next week when Neil preaches, verse 18, Jesus' suffering, that was God's will too. And God's will is that we be like Jesus, believing God will achieve his good purposes through our suffering. And so let's trust that God will achieve his good purposes through it. He's good that he wants to work in your life, in the lives of others through you, and for the glory and honour of Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was 22 years old when he started serving as a pastor. With Hitler's rise to power in Germany, many in the church wanted to conform to Nazi ideology. Most of the church remained silent about the persecution of the German Jews. Horribly. Bonhoeffer was an exception while he kept preaching love for his enemies. He'd joined the German secret service, but his travel allowed him to help Jews escape Nazi oppression. I'd call that doing much good. He was arrested in 1943. He spent two years in prison where he pastored people in the prison. He spent his last months in a concentration camp and he was hanged to death in 1945. But dying with hope, he wrote these words beforehand. This is the end. For me, the beginning of life. A camp doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer's hanging later described the scene. The prisoners were taken from their cells and the verdicts read out to them. Through the half-open door, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout, so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer, then he climbed the steps to the gallows, brave, composed, his death ensued ensued in a few seconds. In almost 50 years that I've worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. What a wonderful example for us. Please don't think that 
That can't be you. In the events that God ordains according to his will and brings into your life, his strength is certainly there. His reservoir of strength is there to meet you in that. So I ask, will you, like he, will you love and pray? Will you trust him and keep doing good even in your suffering? If you are suffering for doing what's right, maybe at home, school, in your workplace, remember you are blessed. We may suffer for doing good, but my third point is this gives us, gives you an opportunity to share your hope. Peter said, if you're suffering for good, doing good, verse, he said, don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. Verse 15, in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So we regard Christ the Lord as holy when we uh, sanctify him when we set him apart as holy, the unique, sinless one. And we do that. We regard Christ as holy. We set him apart as holy when we, for example, take time to think about who Jesus is and what he's done. Think on his goodness and his greatness, his sacrifice, his sinlessness, his love. And then in response to that, we we. As we take time to let that sink into our head and into our heart, we actually feel awe. It's like when it hits you and you just go, oh. We also set part Christ apart as holy when we recognize his lordship, when we confess he is God, when in our hearts we devote ourselves to living for him in our actions and in our words every day. And... It's our response in words that that Peter focuses on here. He says we're to be ready at any time to give an answer to anyone who asks us the reason for our hope. This is not a direct call to evangelism. But I ask, how can anyone ask you the reason you have hope if they don't know that you have hope? They must know and have been able to see or have heard you speak of this hope that you have. This Jesus who's given you a hope of a future with new life and heaven. In 2019, Melbourne Baptist pastor Murray Campbell wrote these words. 2019, before COVID. During the course of 2019, I've observed a growing sense of hopelessness being felt and expressed by people across the globe, especially among teenagers. Climate change, political agendas, social uncertainties are cultivating anxiety and despair and it's spilling over from social media into our schools, onto our streets, I'd add into our lives. And again, I add how much more has hopelessness abounded and grown in the last two years and through all our months of lockdown for us and our young people. Murray wrote, there is something particularly disturbing about witnessing a generation lose hope. But some perspective is in order. 
This is scarcely the first generation with reason to be anxious. The children of the last century had to contend with the trauma of two world wars, the Great Depression, the Cold War with its continual threat of nuclear apocalypse. Millennials are not the first generation to face enormous life-changing obstacles. And it is time to revisit the person of Jesus Christ. For most Australians now, it's time to get to know him for the very first time. Here is a person in whom we can rest our hope. He came into a hostile world and to a people without hope. Jesus demonstrated his divinity in the most powerful and loving ways. He chose to take the road to crucifixion. He was raised to life on the third day. He ascended to heaven. He will hold the nations to account. He will hold all of us to account. But he brings hope and healing, peace and reconciliation. Even today, there are millions of millennials turning to Jesus, discovering in his gospel a hope they cannot find anywhere else. End quote. You see, brothers and sisters, our, our hope, it's life-changing and transforming, it's, and it's attractive to people who suffer, whether our neighbour, our work colleague, person next door, person at playgroup or mainly music. And Peter's first hearers, they knew suffering too. Drawing details from the letter of 1 Peter together, Australian commentator Paul Barnett, in his words, initially the former friends of these converts that Peter wrote to, they found it strange that the Christians discontinued their drinking binges and accompanying sexual activities. Chapter 4. Next, these ex-friends have begun to spread evil rumours about them. Chapter 2. And to insult them in public. Chapter 3. Finally, it would appear these enemies are bringing accusations against the believers in the courts. You see, in verse 15, the word defence is courtroom language. Maybe that will be us one day soon. But as another writer put it, even if we're not giving a defence in a court of law, could we say that we're on trial for Jesus every day as we live as Christians in a pagan and secular society. We're always being analysed. It's always hard. People must know that we have a hope if they are going to ask us the reason why we have hope. What might this look like practically, sharing your hope? I think it means being ready and prepared for questions like, why don't you get even with that person after what they did to you? Why don't you get them back? Or why are you a Christian? Why do you go to church? I've been asked several times, how can you be sure that you're going to heaven? Why are you different? Or how can you smile and be thankful in your cancer treatments. Some of our sisters and brothers in this church have had opportunities to speak of their hope 
even in their pain. How can you smile and be thankful in that situation, in your suffering? Or if COVID restrictions come back, can we still have joy in the Lord? May that give us opportunity. How would you respond? Or what if you lose your job? How can you smile and be still be thankful and at peace when you've lost your job for doing what's right or lost your job because you were open at work about your Christian views? Think through now what you could say so that you're prepared. And in your answer, think about how do I bring Jesus into it? How could you speak about how Jesus died on the cross to forgive your rejection of him and that then he rose from the dead to give you new life forever and it changes everything for you? Because of Jesus, we know this world is not all there is. And this world like it is will not last forever. This suffering will not last forever. The new creation is coming. Jesus gives hope. Can people see that hope in you? Do do you want to tell them why you have hope? Pray for opportunities to speak. Pray for boldness and wisdom and faithfulness to Jesus in what you say. And when we speak, verse 16, it's to be with gentleness. Gentleness, not with pride and smugness and superiority looking down on people. So we're not meant to speak with fighting words. No fighting words, but with a humble attitude and gentle words. Peter also says that we're to respond with reverence. The word is literally fear. But remember verse 14. It's because of verse 14. He can't mean fear of people. It's a fear of God. A deep, awe-filled respect for God. And when we do that, when we have that reverence for God, we'll want to live and speak in a way that honours him, the God who made us and who has saved us. And when we do that, it will mean that we live in a way where we want to keep a clear conscience. Remember, all people are born with some sense of what is right and wrong. God's moral law written on their hearts. And yes, if people refuse to keep listening to it and going against their conscience, it will be deadened, seared, stop working. The conscience is that inner voice or feeling that tells you when you've done something right or wrong. And on the one hand, when we receive the forgiveness that Christ offers, we experience a guilty conscience cleansed. And then we're to keep a clear conscience are continuing to do good, living God's way. So I say to you, if you have a tender conscience this morning, if you have a convicted conscience, then come again to Jesus and trust in him because he died for you. Remember, he bore the cross for you and be thankful. And this clean conscience of the justified sinner is what frees us to live for and to witness to and to testify to Jesus. And so verse 16, when you do good but you're accused of doing wrong, you can have the peace of a clear conscience. 
knowing that you actually didn't do wrong in the sight of God, even if that person or that society or that next law the government brings in says that it's wrong. The point is, as we look to share our hope and the Jesus reason for our hope, live a life of good works which back up the power of the gospel to change lives. Yes, we're not perfect. I'm not perfect. And let's be the first to admit in our friendship circle or at work that we're not perfect and to apologise when we've done wrong. But let's also strive for humility and integrity and goodness that flows from and comes from the heart. You may have seen this Christian bumper sticker, Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. It's true. However, I don't have one of those on my car because the Lord wants, the Lord who forgives us also makes us new so that by his grace, his children show the reality of Christ's salvation. We're not the same people we were. We're to live a life of good works and love and hope, doing good, showing love, showing hope. See, our life and our words, our actions and our words work together to bear testimony to Jesus. Does that make sense? Our good deeds should give us opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus, not bring shame to him. So as I conclude, sometimes we will suffer for doing good. That day will come where people spread lies about us, falsely accuse us, think the worst of us, make us suffer. We don't need to fear them. We're people of hope. Jesus gives hope. Even when we suffer for doing good, remember that you are blessed. And in that moment, you have the chance to point others to Jesus. So be ready to speak of why you're a Christian, why he gives you hope, why he's worth trusting in and living for. Remember why. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise that you've saved us, forgiven our sin, cleansed our consciences from acts that lead to death and result in death. Thank you that through Jesus we have hope, that we are blessed, blessed now with your presence, your spirit, your promises. And, Lord, we may hear or read stories of saints gone by like Bonhoeffer and think, oh, that could never be me. Lord, I pray for all of us that you may remind us that in the trials that you're in control of that come into our lives, our suffering, that your grace and your strength can meet us in our need. Give us deep trust in you. Grow our hope. Grow our love for our enemies and our desire to do good from our hearts, to even bless those who would hurt us, for the glory of Jesus, for opportunities too to speak of the hope that we have in him. So, Father, may we set him apart as holy in our lives, our words, and our actions. And in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.